Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about making work better. Hello, I'm Bruce Daisley. Thank you for joining us today. I'm really thrilled. A great guest we've got today. And I, if you if you do enjoy this and you're interested in making work better and making your own job better, I always remind people to sign up for the newsletter and you can see that it's the very, very top line in the show notes today. So if you just click that and you can add your, your email address there and it's the, the newsletter has been grown really strongly. And actually, it was, I was so thrilled through the, the holiday season for the amount of people who just got in touch, who just hit reply and said, look, I've loved this. I've been sharing it with my colleagues. Thank you very much. So if you are interested, please do sign up for that. Now, there's no better guest to kick off 2021 than Amy Gallo. Amy's a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review. She writes about workplace dynamics, emotional intelligence. She specializes. She's written loads of stuff about conflict and the the power of conflict. She's also the host of the wonderful Women at Work podcast that HBR do. And I've given a, a link to that in the show notes because it's such a good listen. And I think, you know, I've certainly been guilty of not giving enough of the episodes here into themes of inclusiveness and diversity. So, you know, I've, I've had a few in the last few episodes and, and I'm thrilled that Amy comes on, not just because we talk about those themes, because I think it goes a long way beyond that, actually. We talk about the importance of representation in the workplace, but also we talk about how the themes of COVID are going to transform the way that we've been working and we go into uh, a whole load of discussion, trying to make sense of the way that work's going to adapt. I love this discussion. It really felt, you know, such an honor to be picking the brains of someone as incisive and intelligent as Amy. So without further ado, let's go in. So here's my discussion with the writer and podcaster, Amy Gallo. Thank you so much. Lovely to to chat to you because I've I've listened and I've definitely read a lot of your stuff before. So uh, lovely to get the the chance to talk to you. You've been writing about work for a while, and it, this has been sort of your area of interest. This must have been one of the most unpredictable years that anyone's ever seen. What do you think the legacy of twenty twenty will be? Oh man, I don't I don't think we have any idea yet. To be quite honest, I was saying this to my thirteen year old daughter last night that. I don't think we've seen or comprehended the repercussions from for them from the pandemic, from the reckoning with racial justice that we've been doing around the world. I just we're really 
at, at the very beginning of this. And, you know, there's a lot to be seen in terms of how the vaccine rolls out, how, um, you know, wh- whether and how companies go back to in-person work. Um, you know, there's just a lot that we don't know yet. But I do strongly, strongly believe it's going to be an inflection point and an inflection point in both how we do work, but also who's included in the labor market and, you know, and the economy. I think there's going to be a real, we're going to think about the economy pre-COVID and post-COVID for a long time to come. Yeah, you mentioned in, sort of representation and inclusiveness there. And it's felt like along yeah. the way in the last 12 months that we've made big strides forward. At the very least, recognizing our flaws when it comes to representation. And yet, on the mm-hmm. other hand, the idea that we might not be around each other every day and we might not be in the same space might set back the idea of representation, the idea that we we don't even become presented with the inequities in our organizations. What's yeah. your take on it? Do you think, I mean, as, as you just illustrated there, it's, it's too easy to necessarily come up with the, the resolute definitive answer. Are we going to go into a more inclusive place for sure? Or is the, the fact that we're going into remote working the perfect get out of jail card for, for those who, who are resisting a more inclusive future? Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's both, I think is, is the issue, which was, so let's, let's take it from, for example, the perspective of women's careers, which is something we're tracking very carefully on our women at work podcast with, you know, our first episode last season, so last spring, was titled We're Beyond Stretched. And we talked to women who were balancing taking care of family, whether that was kids who were doing remote school, elderly parents who no longer had access to services, um, who were stepping up at work, who were helping their teams adapt to remote work. Um, we even talked to, you know, s- someone who was doing some frontline work um, and just about how stretched they are in terms of meeting the needs of, you know, people in terms of healthcare. I mean, really, the impact we're seeing on women's careers from the pandemic starting in in March, but continuing through now is quite devastating. And mm. we're, you know, we had an expert on um, an episode of the podcast a few weeks ago who said, uh, she's a professor at Babson, who said that we are seeing 1988 levels of par- of participation in the workforce from women right now. I mean, that is, you know, terrifying to think about how far we've regressed in that in that regard. And that is why, because domestic burdens fall unfairly disproportionately on women and so that's it's right. it's reducing right okay yeah that's right and so women are dropping out of the workforce we know for example in the US in over the summer the the numbers that came out in September from the Department of Labor that over 800,000 women had dropped out of the workforce voluntarily so that was, those were not layoffs. Those were people who left the workforce. And that's really terrifying, quite honestly. Mm. And, and women of color were disproportionately affected by those dropouts. And as you said it, the extra burden often falls to women and their, then their careers are the first to be compromised because of these extra burdens. In some ways, us not seeing each other Many, some people have talked about how this could play, you know, level the playing field. It could change our, our concept of who's the ideal worker. It doesn't have to be someone who shows up to the office every day, but 
in order to change those frameworks, we need participation. We need women mm. to be contributing um, and to be welcome and to be, you know, um, valued in the workplace in a way that allows them to remain in their careers. Yeah. And I wonder if that only even tells half the story that you've got this huge number of women dropping out of the workforce, but for a lot of other women who are just about struggling to stay in the workforce, their lived experience becomes markedly worse. I remember chatting to yeah. uh, one woman at the start of lockdown and everyone was in that sort of chaotic but um, kind of energizing survival mode. They were trying to work out this chaotic world. And, you know, just by keeping our heads above water, it felt like we were we were prevailing to some extent. And this woman who was uh, the, the mother of two teenage 20-something children, she said, I cannot wait to get back to an office because at the moment, yeah. every moment I'm in the house is a moment that I have three people demanding that I also do another job. And she said, I just want to do the job that I used to do from nine to five, nine to six, rather than this yeah. additional job I'm doing as well. Now, of course, in those statistics, she's hidden. That lived experience mm. for her that is so markedly worse than what she used to experience. She seems like one of the ones who's thriving and, and you know, making, making it all work. And she's hidden. So I wonder if it's even worse than what we might be able to perceive through these statistics. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, on our podcast, we often try to talk to women who are in situations like the one you described, just to hear their voice, hear what their experience is mm. like. And we, those are the kinds of stories we're hearing, which is, you know, either, uh, you know, I'm fully employed, I'm actually, my office is open. I've been going back in. It's been, you know, we, there was one woman who said she felt like she was going back to the office was being released from a feminist dystopia that her home had become, right? Like it's really, <laughs> it's become incredibly challenging for, for working women who are in the home with kids, you know, with a partner perhaps who's also working from home. You're fighting over who gets the kitchen table, um, you know, to do your work or to do your Zoom calls. You know, it, it's we we are hearing these stories, and you're right; they're not in those statistics. I mean, there's another statistics that a McKinsey um, Lean In report showed. Uh, you know, LeanIn.org uh, and and McKinsey partnered to put this report together that showed that one in four women were contemplating leaving the workforce. And I think mm -hmm. there are people who are just stretched, overwhelmed, um, and then there are people who, like you say, are just eager to dig into their careers because it's a it's a safe place. I mean, I know for me personally, yeah. it's the one aspect of my life where I get very direct feedback about how I'm doing. It's generally pretty positive and it makes me feel great. Like I can feel like a failing mom, a failing spouse, a failing daughter all day long. And I'm not going to get, sometimes I get nice feedback from those people, of course, <laughs> you know, but mostly, you know, work is where I feel I'm, I'm most capable mm. these days. Tell me this. So you've been doing the Women at Work podcast for three years now, six seasons. And I, I guess that's a really short period of time to notice something that's uh, that might systematically change in society. But you've seen through that era, I guess Me Too was happening right at the start of it. Then, you know, we, we've sort of played through this, this great disruption in terms of the pandemic. Are you seeing the themes evolving at, at all? Or is... Thematically, is it still pretty consistent? You know, I think it, it's hard to measure progress. It really depends on what you're what you're looking at. 
in terms of um, your measurements, right? What what are the measurements of progress? I do feel like on on the podcast, what we've seen is there is more willingness to talk about issues like Me Too, um, about racial injustice when it comes, uh, you know, when it comes to women's careers, how the, how the racial injustice impacting women of color in particular. So I think there's more openness to having these conversations. I'm not sure the measures we look at in terms of, you know, women being promoted to leadership positions, women thriving in their careers, women having, um, you know, supported by their organizations or by their leadership. I'm, I'm not sure we're seeing, uh, you know, distinct progress in those areas. But I do notice there is much more conversation, even in my position as an editor at HBR, I see a lot more research on the gender inequities um, than we've seen previously. And I think that's, that is certainly progress. People are becoming more aware of what's happening. And there's a lot more uh, women who are calling for change and male allies who are, who are calling for change. There's still a lot of work to be done, of course. And I think that, and it's particularly for, for women of color, who I think in, in the past few decades, the conversation around women's advancement has really meant advancement for white women, not black women, not Latina mm. women. Like, I think it's really been, you know, as a white woman, I've benefited quite a bit from this focus on diversity and women's equity, but we're just now really reckoning with the fact that that didn't always include all women. So lots of work left to be done for sure. Yeah. And I guess, you know, to link together, to thread together the two bits that you've discussed there, one of the things that we often find when organizations are resistant to to marching along with this tide of change is they say, well, actually the talent pool isn't big enough that, you know, we would have more dot, dot, dot. But if yeah. you knew how hard it was to recruit, then... And so I wonder if threading together those two things, what we might end up seeing is organizations that are resisting this, this, you know, revolution, this evolution of where we are will be afforded the opportunity to say, you know, there's just fewer women who, who are available right now. So we had to pick the guy and we had to pick the white guy. And I, I just wonder, yeah. you know, trying to perceive potential pitfalls and dangers allows us to steer around them. But it does raise yeah. the specter that we we might be presented with regressive organizations reaching for a, a sort of convenient excuse again. Yeah. Yeah. The pipeline problem. We hear we hear, mm. hear about that all the time is when it comes to hiring people of color, hiring women. You know, there's research that shows that the pipeline problem isn't really a problem. The It's not getting women and people of color into organizations. It's getting them into management positions. That's a that's mm. really challenging. That's because of systemic racism and sexism and biases that we all have, all of us, men, women, people of color, when we think of who should be in leadership or, or management positions. So, yes, I do think we're going to face some regression and, and we're always going to face people who say, well, that's just not possible because of X, Y, and Z. And hopefully what one of the things we really try to do at HVR is raise awareness with through research, through evidence, that those obstacles aren't always obstacles. Um, they're often excuses or they're, they're beliefs we hold because, um, you know, we've, we've been re raised in these systems that make us think that women won't make great leaders or black people won't make great leaders. And so luckily we are raising the consciousness around that 
Um, and then we also know from research there are certain things you can um, do to to prevent some of that bias from playing out in decisions that leaders make. You know, one of my favorite pieces of research that we've published at HBR shows that if you have a slate of candidates and with four candidates and only one of them is a woman, it is just statistically impossible that you will hire that woman. Um, you need to have better representation in the slate. And that's often when people start pointing to the pipeline problems like, well, we always we have a woman in the candidate pool, but we ne- we, we never end up hiring her because she doesn't feel qualified. She doesn't seem qualified compared to the other candidates. But we know because of the way the bias works, when you're comparing one woman to three men, you're not going to choose that woman. You're gonna you're gonna eliminate her. Tell me then, what's the solution to that? What a balanced shortlist? Having yes, yep, yep. So having basically just making sure that you have more than one woman or okay. more than one person of color in your candidate pool. Okay. That's going to raise the chances greatly, regardless of 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 people's capabilities or their qualifications that's just going to help you fight the bias the natural bias most of us have when it comes to choosing like people right so if you have um you know three white people and one person of color you're going to compare the white people to each other and start start valuing one of those candidates more than the other so it's not it's it's really about how our mind groups and compares uh, candidates based on, on qualities that that aren't necessarily related to how they'll do in the job. Tell me, what's your, your take on? So, I guess outside of the US, um, I would have I would have felt that at the start of 2020, one of the emergent themes seemed to be that there was big discussion in Europe and in Australia and, and New Zealand about shorter working weeks, about the four day week or people working condensed hours, and actually a lot of that had been had come off the back of the superpowers of women who'd been working, often working parents, working mums, who'd been working condensed weeks and had been highly productive. And so there was this big theme that was gaining some traction at the start of 2020 about the four-day week. So uh, interestingly for me, I came over to the US in February and I I was doing something over there. And I mentioned this to a few people and they said, oh, wow, we don't want to work a shorter week. A few people said to me, we just want to work remotely. And so it felt like this big dichotomy that we were starting the year. What would prevail? Would it be about remote work or would it be about shorter working? And I guess circumstances propelled us towards this remote work (laughs) thing. But Firstly, I'm really interested in the North American perspective on that. Do you think that there's any legs in a a shorter working week? And um, what's your take on whether that's going to be a change too far in the context of this remote working equilibrium that we've now seen established? Yeah. So, you know, I think in the US, we have a, you know, a work addiction problem. There's no doubt that we just work way too much. And I think the overwork, as you pointed out, in particular can hurt um, people who are balancing other commitments, men and women who are balancing mm. other commitments. And, you know, we're, we're publishing a, quite a bit now on, on working dads and how they also suffer when, when there's not balance in, in a work week. Now, I do feel like, you know, there is, has been some trend toward these shorter work weeks. I hear about it. I haven't seen it executed in the U.S. Um, as much as I think maybe it's been done elsewhere. Even even when women ask for flexibility to work for a condensed work week, we do see in the research that they tend to be 
penalized for doing so in in terms of their long career long term career prospects. So I do think there's a lot of hesitancy to do that. And I think as you point out, the pandemic has just sort of thrown that whole idea out the window because what we're seeing is that people are actually working more. So they're saving time because they're not commuting. They're they're available 24/7 and that has meant that they're doing uh, more work as a, as a result. So I don't, especially if we're working flexibly, I'm not sure we're actually going to be working less. Um, that certainly hasn't been my experience. And during the pandemic, I, and certainly not the people who I, um, you know, my friends, my colleagues, I, I see most of us working more, but the pandemic has created a lot more work for many people, those of us who have been fortunate to be employed because, you know, you're adapting to new systems, you're figuring out new ways of working. There's, you know, the, the circumstances, the economy, the, you know, everything in, in people's industry are changing so rapidly. There's just a lot more that we need to be doing. So I, I unfortunately think that, that 2020 is going to set us back along those lines, but I'm curious, are you seeing uh, the conversation in other parts of the world continue around these shorter condensed work weeks? Well, the, the really interesting thing is that um, a couple of weeks ago, so Unilever packaged goods company, you know, they're, they're ang- Anglo-Dutch, but they, um, they're sort of worldwide. And they announced that they were shifting to a four-day week experiment for for their New Zealand workers. So the idea that maybe they would, they would switch into this. The same week, the Spanish government announced that they were, sw- were switching all their government workers to a four-day week. And they, they announced it principally as a job creation scheme, an idea that Spanish... Uh, the, the Spanish economy, I think, carries about a 20-something percent unemployment rate. And so by switching to a four-day week, they were able to allow the the the, the gift of working to, to permeate more people. And so, you know, it, it's so difficult to ever know whether what you're spotting is two isolated, coincidental things or whether you're spotting the, the start of an emergent trend. But I have yeah. seen a few of those themes dotted around. And, you know, I'm just intrigued. One of the things that's really interesting for me societally is that for the last two or three decades, I think you would say that work has become a defining part of our identity in a way that probably historically is without precedent. You know, we describe ourselves as our job. We walk into a room, we are our job. And I wondered maybe sort of the foolish optimism in me. I wonder whether the fact that we might be working from home more and the way that we've all witnessed that that rebalances our domestic and our work identities to some extent. I wonder if we might be reaching an era where we're able to draw a line between those things. And mm. and look, I don't know. I'm musing yeah. aloud, but I, um, I am intrigued. I, I have definitely noticed that there's more of a discussion on these themes outside the US than in the US. And and that raises an interesting point to me, exactly like you say there. I wonder what the reason is. We're, we're so often united, you know, the, the Brits and the Americans in a lot of cultural elements, but this um, fetishization of our ad- adoration of work is slightly different. Brits carry a cynicism towards work. Most Brits talk about work like school pupils talk about school with a sort <laughs> of, you know, a, a, uh, a wry reluctance to ever admit that they love our jobs. Whereas I don't always witness that the same with the US. So I'm just intrigued, yeah. you know, I think yeah. if we could get to a, a, 
relationship with work where we're working really industriously, but it doesn't leave this indent in the rest of our life, then mm. probably it's in service of us doing better work. That's what intrigues me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think your, your observation about, um, you know, how it's, how work is created, you know, such an important part of our identity is, I think, absolutely true. And it's certainly been my experience and what I've seen, um, you know, from thought leaders who are thinking about the way we interact with work, which is that it's just become so central to our identity. We describe ourselves, as you said, in terms of our work. We also just derive so much meaning and sense of identity and fulfillment mm -hmm. from our jobs that that it's, you know, there isn't that distance, that cynical distance you're talking about that Brits have of, well, you know, I have to do it. You know, there is certainly some of that, but but I think, especially among knowledge workers, there's this this real fetishization of the hustle, right? I'm giving mm. it all. I'm I'm so dedicated to my work. This is who I am. This is what matters, and and I think it's unhealthy. I mean, I think we're it's it's fine to derive meaning from work, but not at the risk of you know being able to attend to other parts of our life. You're you're thought about will this idea that we're sort of everything is becoming blurred will that help I, i'm not sure i mean i think mm. in some ways i wonder if i mean i you know as i was talking about earlier my go-to place for a sort of sense of fulfillment and satisfaction right now is work because it is so clear-cut compared to the blurred messiness that is the rest of my life so you know, that doesn't mean I'm ignoring the other aspects of my life, but it does mean, you know, it, I may be putting more eggs in my work basket than I should be putting right now. Um, so I don't, you know, it's, it's, it, I'm going to, I'm going to be very interested to see what happens in the next year and or two as we start sort of extricating ourselves from this real, um, you know, conflation that's happened between our work lives and our personal lives. I mean, it's all, you know, my husband was joking the other day. He said, I now vacation, work, and live in the exact same, you know, <laughs> 1200 square feet. You know, like it, and, and it's, and it's true. We took a staycation, but we didn't go anywhere because of what's going on with the pandemic. And so we're just, we're just always in the space. And, you know, I hear him on work calls now. He, he hears me on, you know, work calls. He's, you know, hiding out right now so he doesn't make noise in the background while we record this, right? It's just all so yeah. interconnected and blended. And I don't know how we extricate ourselves from that. I don't know yet how that, what that looks like. Do we just all go back to the office? And, you know, as your friend was telling you, I just want to be some, somewhere else from nine to six and be able to focus. Like, do we all go back and do that? Or do we carry some of this blending and flexibility over. Yeah, I was on a, a radio discussion with a wonderful British columnist called Lucy Kellaway, who wrote a column about work, I think it was called Office Life or Office Politics, uh, for 30 years in the Financial Times. And um, and she she eventually quit to, to go and become a, a school teacher, an educator. But um, one of the things she mentioned hmm. in this radio discussion is she says, I miss being a different person. I miss going into the office and, you know, I'm, I guess... 
by sort of construction, what she means is she's not someone's mum there. She's not someone's partner there. She's not, you know, she's not got this responsibility. She can be this sarcastic, witty, irascible identity. She misses putting different clothes on. She misses, and I can recognise that, that, you know, to some extent we did leave this duality, this this multiplicity of different personalities that, you know, with different friends with different people. And actually there's a really energising part of that. And back to your husband's point when we're living out when the, the only set we're ever on is the same one we sometimes lose that nuance and and the that sort of variety of who we're trying to be like i say it's just it's yeah. fascinating to imagine to skip six moves ahead and work out how this is going to play out i think i think it's worth mentioning too that you know the system before so when we think about pre-pandemic and and working parents the system was not set up for them to succeed, at least in the U.S., right? We don't have universal childcare, um, you know, because of this sort of focus on overwork. There was, you know, it's not like working moms were thriving, you know, pre-2020, right? We were already really struggling. And so the pandemic in some ways has really intensified that and highlighted the ways in which we don't support working parents. So I think that as we sort of unravel what's happened, as we the world starts to open up again, as, we, as the vaccine gets rolled out, all of that, we really would do ourselves a, a service by asking the questions of like, what do, we can't just go back. We can't just go back to what was happening before because it wasn't working for a huge part of our working population. So what could be different now? You know, what aspects of this, of this pandemic, mm. of this working from home, the flexibility we, some of us have now, right? Wh what aspects of that would, do we want to carry over and what do we want to change? Yeah. Well, and look, it's an important question because often we won't even notice the things that have changed, subtle things. We'll notice big themes, obviously. But yeah, it sort of, it begs the question, we need to be very observant of what casually has changed back to the sort of the point about representation. One of the things I was interested yeah. kind of on that theme was that you've written a lot about conflict at work and the, mm -hmm. the, the healthy aspects of conflict. And I wanted to ask you a, a couple of things. Firstly, how do you think, um, well, firstly, I guess the entry point is that why is your philosophy, why is your belief that conflict at work is a healthy part of, of the process? And then I want to get into, I wonder how conflict will change in a different way of working. So firstly, I wonder if you could do us the setup there. Yeah. So I am a strong believer that we don't disagree nearly enough at work. And partly because Conflict, you know, not seeing eye to eye with your colleagues is a normal, inevitable part of interacting with human beings. So it's going to happen first and foremost. And I don't think pretending it doesn't exist helps anyone, right? We lose out on innovation, the opportunity to have stronger relationships, the opportunity to feel like we belong, right? Because there's, if you're hiding opinions or viewpoints or not disagreeing with your colleagues, you're essentially you know, being inauthentic. And that really creates distance for people between people rather than closeness. So there's so many positive benefits of disagreements when they're handled professionally and productively. Now, 
that doesn't, you know, as you say, that that doesn't necessarily happen all the time. And somehow in working remotely sort of intensifies our hesitation to want to engage in disagreement with people. Yeah, I remember reading an essay by Jonathan Franzen and Jonathan Franzen was observing how technology was going to change the art of the novelist. And he said, you know, the thing about the, the driving force for any narrative is conflict and, you know, like disagreement because those moments of dialogue that are conflict playing out and two people's um, motivations being sort of in, in antagonistic uh, direction to each other drives drama. And he said the challenge of moving principally yeah. to people texting each other is that we rehearse, we prepare, we, we think things through. And so it's effectively at the elimination of conflict. I have to say, that is not my experience of text-based communication. <laughs> text-based communication seems riven with conflict. And so firstly, yes. um, what's your take on it? You know, if we move more to Slack messages and emails and, and pings, is it going to reduce conflict? Is mm. it going to make it a lower quality conflict? Because we're not even understanding each other's position, but more a sort of construction based on eight words. Was Franson right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think in some ways he is, in some ways he isn't. It's one of those things where I think it's both, right? We, in some, in, you know, it is um, much uh, easier to rehearse and plan out what you're going to say or to even avoid conflict. I mean, the concept of ghosting, right? Something bad mm. happens between you and another person. They just don't have to text back, right? Or they don't email back, whatever. You can just sort of abandon the the difficult conversation. Uh, you know, with a coworker, you're going to have to face that person at some point. Um, but it is, I think in some ways, it makes it easier for us not to really engage because we don't have to look someone in the eye. And that's that's really, we're, we're compelled to interact when we have to look someone in the eye and, and really understand how they're feeling, you know, how they're reacting to what you're saying. So we're, we're missing a lot of that, which is also why I think your experience is that we have a lot more conflict because there's, you know, text-based communication is ripe for miscommunication and misunderstanding. And that's, I mean, that's what I see all day long. I don't know about you, but since this yeah. pandemic began, I'm on all these, you know, group text change, like our neighbors, some family members, right? Different group text change. And it's amazing to watch how often someone says something and it gets misconstrued and then there's sort of a flurry of text to try to clarify. And then you can tell someone, oh, someone called that person to, to clear it up, right? You know, that's the ideal. Or sometimes something gets said and it's clearly misconstrued and everyone goes silent. And I think that that it's a real hard way to interact with people when you're just, you don't have any of the nuance of the tone of their voice, the, the look in their eye, their body language. You know, I had this, I had a conflict the other day with someone who I have almost only exclusively emailed with. And I had to have a, you know, raise a difficult issue with this person. And I, it took me a long time to write the email. And I, part of me was just wishing and wishing, like, I just wish I could walk over to her desk yeah. right now because it would just, it would, I could, I could show through my body language that I wasn't upset, that I just wanted to raise this sensitive issue to work it through together. There would have been, it would have really resolved itself quite quickly. And instead we had some really uncomfortable email exchanges. Eventually that led to, I think, a place where we both felt comfortable, but it was so much harder. Mm. And 
you know, and, and, you know, to Jonathan Franzen's point, I wrote those emails. I mean, they were probably a total of 200 words, you know, the three emails I wrote, but I spent so much time planning mm-hmm. out each one, rewriting, sharing it with my husband. What do you think about this? Right. And it's because we don't have the sort of improv of just looking someone in the eye, raising an issue, working it out, demonstrating that we're in it together. You know, we don't, it, it things take a, a longer time to to resolve, and I think because of that, because we know that, what I've seen happen is people avoid conflict. So mm-hmm. the you know I I can't tell you how many Zoom calls I've been on in in all these different contexts since March, where it's clear not everyone agrees with what the proposal is or the way the discussion is going, but the cost of saying oh excuse me wait hold on like. Zoom is already awkward enough. And then to have to raise a difficult conversation in that context, when someone could just all of a sudden shut off their camera or you might get it, you know, get interrupted and everything shuts down. You know, there's so much um, cost to to raising difficult issues in those contexts that what I'm observing is that rarely are people disagreeing and they're just sort of going along with whatever is whatever is the first proposal or the easiest proposal or the pr- proposal from the most senior person on the Zoom call, and and they're not raising those disagreements, which I think is a huge loss. Yeah, the, the interesting thing for me there would be that um, I worked for eight years as uh, vice president at Twitter, and one of the things I think we observed in my experience at Twitter, when I reflect back on it, is that I think what screens can be very good for, and I guess by that I mean sort of text based communication, it become it can be immensely powerful if you feel a sense of affiliation with the person opposite you. If someone posts something you love, then, you know, internet culture could be incredibly supportive. And, you know, you only need to witness the sort of the fandoms of pop stars. They, they can be these tribal collections of people who really, you know, they, they'll sort of fight for each other. But what we witness is when we don't have that sense of affiliation, when we don't identify with each other, actually enmity can really creep into those spaces. And what you described to me there is when people go silent, we might take that based on the old world as accord or consensus or people are agreeing. And what we could yet be creating are these silent, hostile groups of affiliation where the older workers at the office in the, or the older workers in the workplace no longer feel they share a sense of direction and purpose with younger workers, especially as the younger workers are dialing in and seeing people in their home offices while they're sitting at the kitchen table. So I'm just intrigued. If my experience in social media has taught me anything, I'm intrigued that we might not necessarily see the, the full playing out of these things until the challenges they present are right on top of us, I think. Yeah. And I think that's right. I think we mm. we will procrastinate on raising these issues because without that sense of affiliation and and truthfully being in an office with other people gives you that sense of affiliation where if you're physically in the same space together, you're working toward the same things. That's not to say there's not conflict in those offices. Of course there is and there should be. But I think without that sort of visual representation of our connection with one another and to be able to, again, look someone in the eye you're not going to get, you're not going to give people the benefit of the doubt. And that's what I see a lot happen is that there's, you know, silence can be interpreted as accord or silence can be interpreted as anger or 
confusion, mm-hmm. right? We just don't know. And it's, and we're not used to in these env- environments saying, Oh, you didn't say anything. What does that mean? <laughs> right? Like we have to, that's one of the things about these, these, um, it, you know, Zoom calls or, or WebExes or, or Microsoft team calls, right? You, you have to be so much more explicit than you would have to be if you were in person and about what things mean, about what you're thinking, about what your intention is. And we don't, do that. Most of us just went from working in an office to working from home without resetting all of those norms around how do we disagree? How do we bring up tough issues? How do we have difficult conversations? You know, truthfully, many organizations didn't have those norms in an in-person environment either. But when for those that did, there was no resetting of here's how we do this now that we're not, you know, physically together. And I think that's really made people hesitant or it's made people misconstrue what their colleagues are saying or doing in a way that's been detrimental. Just brilliant way to describe it because, you know, I, I think these are going to be big themes and they're going to be ongoing the, the way that we redefine our workplaces. More with my discussion with Amy Gallo after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now back to my discussion with the writer and podcaster, Amy Gallo. Uh, Amy, we're running out of time. I wonder if, um, before we give you the opportunity to talk briefly about your podcast and and your book, I, I wonder if you could tell us something you've been inspired by that someone could read or or go and see that you've been inspired by recently. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've um, been really enjoying this fall is there's a there's a British author named Ali Smith. I don't know if you know her. Um, she writes fiction. She wrote a quartet, a seasons quartet. So. Uh, it started with autumn, winter, spring, and then summer just came out actually this past summer. So I'm on spring and they're all, they're, they're novels, but they're really about this particular time. She's really managed to capture what it's like to live through, uh, Brexit and the Trump era. And even COVID appears in, in the last, um, the last, you know, uh, installment of, of the, of the series, which I haven't gotten to yet, but a friend has told me. And she just does, does a, brilliant, brilliant job of describing 
what it's like to be alive right now, how hard it is, and how hard relationships are. I think from a from a conflict expert perspective, that's the thing that's really intrigued me is the relationships that she's describing and, and the tensions that come up and how we navigate, you know, relationships with people who don't see the world the same way we do. Oh, wonderful. What a wonderful recommendation. And just to finish, we're, we're out of time, but you obviously do this wonderful HBR podcast. Um, tell us about it and where can people find it? Yeah. So it's called Women at Work. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts, also at hbr.org. And with in it, my I have two co-hosts, Amy Bernstein and Emily Caulfield. And we do, you know, each episode is really focused on an issue that's relevant to women's careers at this particular moment, um, as well as sort of evergreen advice. We did an episode this uh, earlier this season about what to do if you're shy, how, how can you be a leader if you're shy, for example. But we're also talking about how the pandemic, how, um, you know, the, the efforts toward racial justice in the U.S. are affecting women's careers as well. So we just wrapped up our sixth season. All the podcast, all the episodes are available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been a, a real pleasure to hear your take on these. I think that on the complete disruption that we've witnessed this year and, and hopefully make sense of what's to come. Thank you so much. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. So it's so nice to be on your show and uh, fun to chat. Thank you, Amy. Like I say, if you enjoyed that, then I think you're going to love her podcast, which is Women at Work. It's a Harvard Business Review podcast talking brilliantly about some of the themes that women in the workplace find, but not exclusively sort of gendered. It's just a a, a great and intelligent discussion on, I guess, modern working. So grateful to Amy for her making the time to, to chat to me. Like I say, if you do like this, please do sign up for the newsletter and you'll find that Uh, top note in the show notes. I've been Bruce Daisley. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.